if someone were to say, tell me about what Christianity is like, what would, what would you say? There was a book that was published 100 years ago this year by a man named J. Gresham Machen, who was a professor at once Princeton Theological Seminary, but then later at Westminster Theological Seminary. He left and started Westminster with several of his friends uh, because of this growing chasm uh, within the United States at the time. And what he did was he wrote a book 100 years ago called Christianity and Liberalism. And what he sought to do was show what has been defined at that point for, thousand, or for a couple thousand years of what is the Christian faith like, and then compare it with this rising theological trend called liberalism. Uh, and it has nothing to do with Christianity. Now, we very often, I think, find ourselves maybe socially in conversations or maybe even moving to a particular area, finding ourselves within the middle of what we feel is tension between what Christianity is like versus maybe what the Bible says. Religions today are championed in many ways because of their mystery or their tolerance or their religion, their ability to change their religion. Now, my generation, as a millennial, we are the best. We've been told that, we've been told that ever since five and under soccer. My generation has been taught to be tolerant to the unknown, to find mystery as virtuous, even within religion. Truth is personal, not shared between other people, or you can even hear the phrases said by other people that my truth might be different than your truth, and we all need to find what could be said as my truth. And acceptance is actually the high point of love in today's world. Tolerant or accepting, changing, accommodating, mysterious and inexpressible, is that what you would describe Christianity to be like? Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, the answer to that is no. If you're here and you are a Christian, is that how you find yourself living within the Christian faith? Enjoying the unknown? Swapping here and there just to make appeasement with other friends? Some theologians suggest that God himself can change. He too develops and grows along with everything else in the universe. This is a haunting notion that people have. Many people today prefer the idea of a God who is so removed and so different from us that he is more like a force than a father. Now, our sermon this morning is coming from the book of Micah. It's the next in a series of books in the Bible called the Minor Prophets. Um, They're all bound together for several centuries before the birth of Christ. These books were collected together on one scroll and became known as the Twelve. So, in many ways, we're looking at these books as if they were individual chapters in a book of the Twelve, week by week going through them, trying to understand what has God said to to these people or those people, and then within that, looking at, man, where is this a mirror about me? Where is this a window about Christ? Uh, And even where is this um, a great unraveling of what's to come? Micah's book was written, though, in a day very much like today, and I, see, I think you'll see that bit by bit. Uh, written around 8th century B.C., Micah saw Israel as fallen into terrible moral depths. And through this, life was miserable collectively. We, we were cheering ourselves on, but in many ways, we, we were dying on the inside. And it was all people's faults. It's common today to blame situations on systems or people groups, or oppression, or colonialism, but really the examination of the heart of the people in this text says that their major issue is actually them. The problems that are wrecking havoc on society 
<laughs> that came about because of them. And I think just in retrospect, you might, you might come to terms, you know, have a, have a Jesus moment with the reality of, of your life is not perfectly okay because of what came out of you, isn't it? Being told that you're the problem. And in here, even in this case, God's people are the problem. Look at, look at Micah starting in verse 2 of chapter 1. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down from a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place of planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. The scope here, the environment here, is one of misery. Misery is everywhere. No grapes, no figs, cravings go unsatisfied. Godliness isn't found anywhere amongst God's people. Instead, instead of life, there's murder. Instead of justice, there's corruption. Instead of fairness, there's bribery by God's own. Nobody trusts each other. Not even spouses trust each other. The family is splintered and splitting away, and the situation in Micah's Israel is shown to be grim. But amazingly, Micah has the, the tone of the Lord's judgment, while also the tone of the Lord's mercy. There's, there is many flourishing instances of hope in this book because of what God says. God says his judgment, and God says his mercy. Micah's hope in this terribly difficult spot was based on God in his word. Friends, I wonder just even in this part, can you seek to apply this in your own life? Is the judgment that we might day by day receive from God or from the world? From God or from friends? In the same way is the mercy that you and I experience. Can I know that and experience that because of what has God said? Is God basically tolerant, changing, and mysterious? I think you come up to the point in these several minor prophets and, you know, this this prophet is about that and that prophet's about these people or those people. You had the the turn in Jonah. And then you might be just taking a step back and go, you know what I really want? I just want God to tell me what he wants. I'm messed up. I keep messing up. I'm a ruiner. What does God want of me? What does God want of all of this? I think that's really what Micah helps us understand. It gives us glimpses and showcases of what God really wants. And I think he does this in three ways. If you have an outline that's in the back of the bulletin that you hopefully were provided as you would enter the sanctuary, you'll see three points there. These, these are not necessarily, or they're not chronological through Micah. They're not chapter by chapter through Micah. I'll say in a second, but Micah is, is like a, a showcase of three different prophecies doing the same thing. But I, I, I think what we can see here is three things that God wants which rise to the top. The first one, what does God want? God wants to rebuke sin. He wants to rebuke sin. I think it's most clear that God wants sin, especially in this particular book, to be rebuked. 
to be thrown up against the wall and defined of what it is, especially sin within his own people's lives. Now, granted, in chapters 4 and 7, from a, from a large, bulking standpoint, those are more hopeful tones, but it's everywhere that God wants to rebuke sin. Micah has three chains of prophecies. So you see these, see these chains happening in chapters 1 and 2, and then 3 through 5, and then 6 through 7. Uh, it's sins of God's people that he sought to condemn and rebuke. But look at how Micah promises that God is coming to comfort Judah for the sins. You see that in chapter 1. For this I will lament, in verse 8, and wail. I go stripped. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a lamentation just like the jackals, and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people. Tell it, weep, roll, pass. On and on. God wants to rebuke sin in order to bring his people to himself. And in chapter 2, God would promise the destruction toward these people, and it continues to unfold. Now, later in the latter part of chapter 2, the Judeans are said to love false prophets. So he's going to do these things. Why is he going to do those things? Why is he going to rebuke his people? Well, here we have the latter part of of chapter 2, because these people actually love false prophets. They're not just hearing from them. They're not just being kept from them or thrown into them. These people are seeking out false prophets and their false prophecies. These people are shown to love lives, even people who claim to be prophets. They're shown to love these lives. An illustration is given at the end of the chapter where they're actually willing to sacrifice truth even for the sake of a lot of alcohol. They wanted prophets who'd tell them everything was going to be great. They'd ignore truth on purpose for pleasure. Maybe you've even Googled on your own answers to something and something popped up and you're like, uh, that surely isn't right. Let me change the data or let me change the, the setting on it. You, you want to pursue something to make you feel good. Hopefully you would never do this with a doctor or a lawyer or someone who inspects a, a, a weapon right, where you just go, I, I don't want to be told truth. I just want something, something that will make me happy. I, 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 but these people were looking for the cheerful and optimistic diagnoses. And this is what Judah is doing. So God will judge them for their sin. The judgment would be severe here. Look back at chapter 1, verse 3. It said the Lord was, in verse 3, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon high places of the earth. This isn't a, a sweet picture of the Lord dancing around or skipping around on mountaintops. This is a picture of the Lord crushing everything that stands beneath his feet. All the weight of his divine glory bears down on those who've proven to be committed more to their sins than to him. Now, one thing to see here is that God is actually shown to be a personal God, not a faraway God. He's the one who would come and do these things. He's personal. God wanted wrong to be rebuked, and he will personally ensure that judgment comes. And it says that he would do it himself. By history, though, we know, I shouldn't say though, by history, comma, we know the Assyrians destroyed these northern people just a few years after Micah uh, would have had his prophecy go out. The northern tribes of Israel had vanished. A century and a half later, it would be Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah who were also conquered. So the prophecy of this is both historically saying this is going to come, but the greater, uh, more glorious parts for you and I is what the prophecies also talk about is what would come with hundreds of years later. 
But chapters 3 and 5, this second prophecy, uh, focus on rebuke sins of leaders. So the, the first one is talking about people who love false things. The, the second one is about these teachers or these leaders who abused their people for their own selfish gain. Right out of the gate in chapter 3, graphic language exposes the horror of life under these leaders. And it shows their preservation or their perversion and abuse of their own authority. The leaders disregard life. The leaders despise justice. The leaders here, under the authority of God, bribe like a mob. They sin. Not just the people sin, but those who are, those who are later in the book of James, those who will give an account for how their people pursue the Lord are shown to love sin. So at its root, you and I understand, we need to understand even more uh, intensely that sin is a matter of the heart. You hate good and love evil. It says about them in chapter 3, verse 2. Jesus himself in the New Testament says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. This is in Matthew chapter 15. Now, if you're unused to the Scriptures, what we see on the regular basis is what Jesus would go around and do is not create another religion altogether, but actually expound and expose of what was being told to God's people from the very beginning where he uses, I think, an illustration of what's being done in Micah, where these people have these hateful hearts. And when a heart is twisted, separated from God, this heart then does evil. So God promises here to destroy these leaders. Friend, I think it's helpful for you and I to understand that sin actually does have consequences. I would imagine you and I have failed, and we thought, man, I really hope no one notices These people weren't just thinking that, but it's like they were dancing in the midst of this party, not thinking that there would be any sort of consequence for their sin. And the most fundamental consequence of sin is not just in what's going to come, but that's true, but the the fundamental consequence of sin is the separation it brings between people and God. These people, by their sin, were separating themselves from God. It separates us from Him. The, The leaders of Israel may seek God in prayer, I mean, how much more religious can you get? They they were seeking the Lord in prayer. But God says that he will not answer them because, he continues to say, because of the evil that they have done. So God will treat them as they've treated others. Maybe if you're here and you're, you're a little child, you surely, from someone, a teacher or a mom or a dad or someone in your life would have said the golden rule to you that you should do unto others as has been done to you. We see the reverse of this, friend. We see the reverse of this in the Bible. And when you see someone acting like this, it brings on consequences. So in many ways, those of you, I'm still talking to the little ones here and the older ones here as well, maybe you've put in time out or maybe you've been disciplined or instructed to not do something. The the reason that people are doing that in your life is because they actually want you to be close, not far away. And what sin is, is actually running away from God and His goodness. And here we see that the whole nation was guilty of false worship and fake trust. So in chapter 5, God promises to destroy the objects of both their political and their religious security. Look at chapter 5, verses 10 through 13. Chapter 5, a couple pages over. Chapter 5, verses 10 through 13. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you 
and you will and will destroy your chariots. And I'll cut off the cities of your land and throw down your strongholds. I'll cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortune. I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to work to the work of your hands. Remember, these were people whom God had revealed himself to. These were not those who didn't know any better. These were people who God had revealed himself to, and these were people who God had uniquely loved. But they had begun to trust in things like horses and walls instead of God. They sought out divinity by observing clouds and even reading chicken waste. They loved sacred stones. They dotted the land with carved images that essentially told God to get lost. These are our gods, and we'll rely on them. They love their work. They love their accomplishments. You see this happening so much within how people will talk about what's going on in their lives. I might say, how are you doing? Or, how's it going? And I think one of the things I most often hear from parents who have kids is I might say, how are you doing? And they immediately start talking about some success or circumstance of their kids. Now, I care about your kid, I'm not talking to them right now. Like, I'm asking you, how's your heart? How are you doing? Oh, man, soccer's been so busy, or school started up, so that means everyone's getting sick. And it's like, I think that can be a glimpse of what we constantly put ourselves around for joy and fulfillment. Or I might say, what's the greatest thing about living in Enid? And your response might be, stuff, or no traffic, or constant wind, right? All right, now you're listening. Okay. But here, we see so many things that they're trusting in. And I think you can just see this as a mirror. They're trusting in horses. They're trusting in land. They're trusting in idols that they've made. They're trusting in sorceries, carved images. And it says things like, and you shall bow down no more to the works of your hands. We have this recognized and playing out where God is showing these people of what has been done for them. God did rescue these people from slavery in Egypt. And did he rescue them so that they would live like this? He says for them to live righteously. And in part, because of look at all that's been done to them. They were were brought out of Egypt. Slavery and oppression. And what did these people do? What did these religious leaders do? Started making bribes? Started trusting in sorcerers? Started loving false teachers? It, It seems insane until you kind of turn it and go... Oh, God, save me from this same pursuit as well. God promised that Israel would be abandoned by him if they keep doing this. They had chosen their sins rather than him. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would imagine that you think the book of Micah, if you've read it, is quite severe. There's a lot of intense language in it. It seems to come so rapidly. You might even think it's unjust. These are his children who would treat their children like this or allow their children to be treated like that. But the reality of sin is so severe. Separating ourselves from God is so intensely severe. Every sin we commit, according to the Bible, so if you're not a Christian, this is what we believe about what the Scriptures say, every sin, according to the Bible, is actually a personal affront to God, a rebellion against His authority and refusal of His wisdom, a rejection of His love. This, in part, is why Christians might speak so much about their personal sin why they talk so much about needing to confess their sin to the Lord, because not only do we do those things, 
But we also know how severely an affront it is toward a holy God who gave us life, who gave us freedom in Christ, who gave us salvation. And so it is so serious. But friend, I wonder if you think how serious it is to you. It's serious in here. It'd be our own testimony of how serious sin is. But do you see it as very serious? Every sin that we commit is an affront to a personal God. Consider how reckless sin really is. Consider what havoc it brings your life. What has been the reward of your pride? What has been the reward of your anger? What's been the reward of that bribe that you may have offered or have taken? Maybe the reward of your physical involvement with someone who is not your spouse. The reward of your love of what God hates. The reward of your indifference to what God loves. Are ignoring God's word day after day. What friend has that brought you? Sin produces nothing good. And in pursuing righteousness, we're promised from the scriptures to have a fulfilling joy in the Lord. But sin is the exact opposite. So even if you're a Christian, I wonder if you see uh, this picture uh, as something that appears as severe. And maybe you've seen the extreme at first to see the intensity that God has in his rebuke against sinners. But you recognize how much God really hates sin. You've recognized that in your own testimony, and you see this as severe, and you recognize that God really does hate sin, but you may wonder, how much does God hate sin? Christian, remind yourself of the clear answer in Scripture. You find the answer, actually, in how much God hates sin at the very cross where He sent His own Son, where you can witness the extent of which God has, or which God was willing to go in order to deal with sin. That's how much He hates sin, because it came at the cost of His own Son, And so God, in this passage, and we pray that God does in our lives, God wants to rebuke wrong and praise him for that, especially the wrongs among his own people. I would imagine in an own relationship, whether it's with a spouse or a friend or someone over you or under you, has pointed out something in your life that really, really hurts, in part because you may have not known it, or in part because you were exposed. But friend, isn't the freedom living in the light so much better than hiding away in darkness? In God's mercy and grace, it appears like thunder and a holy God who is crushing mountains beneath him. But it also comes as a great, sweet mercy to us. So God wants sin to be rebuked. The second thing that God wants, I think, in the book of Micah is for his people to be restored. He doesn't just want to do away with them, but he wants his own people to be restored. It's helpful And hopeful to know that in every sphere or every severe prophecy in Micah, there's a pronouncement of judgment, but there's also a calming hope of God's desire and salvation. There's a pronouncement of judgment, but then there's also a calming hope hope of God's desire and salvation. If you were just to map out the structure as as the book of Micah goes, you're going to see thunder and peace, thunder and peace, thunder and peace, and then a lot of peace. It's this amazing pronouncement. Look back now at verse two, or chapter 2, verse 12. So go back a couple of passages. Chapter two, verse, or chapter 2, verse 12. Micah just denounced Israel, but there's light after darkness. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them, up, set them together like a sheep in a fold like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. A trilogy we see here of salvation. I will surely assemble 
I will gather the remnant. I will set them together. Friend, God's desire, his promise, is to save the remnant here. That's what makes Micah so different than the other minor prophets before him and after him. It's this promise that God will save a remnant, those left over. That doesn't mean that he would not judge. He would judge by sending Judah into exile, but we recognize also that God fulfilled these promises by sending the first group from Judah to exile in 605 B.C., and the rest of the city followed later. Seventy years after the initial deportation, the first group of Jews returned to Jerusalem. Ezra and Nehemiah later returned to lead in the recovery of God's word and rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls, ultimately restoring the people of God as Micah had foretold. God desires to assemble, to gather, and to set them together. It's a beautiful picture of, of the sheep in a fold. I don't, know, I don't know if you've ever seen sheep go together. It, it seems, if you focus on one, like a little chaotic, but in the group, something majestic and awesome is kind of happening. All these hundreds of sheep are going into a field together in order to do what? Be fed. And this is what God is promising to do with His people. He will, he will save the remnant. So the ferocious language of God's judgment against His people in the book of Micah shouldn't leave us with the idea that God said nothing more to His people. It's not just judgment. He said a remnant would inherit the promise of Israel as a whole. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we would all say to you, we hope that is you. We believe ourselves as believers and participators in God's divine grace as to be one of the remnant. And we pray that that would be you as well, more than anything. Would you want to become one of those people whom God will save? Surely you know something of your sins, maybe in your own life or what I just said earlier, and you may well believe that there is a God and you may have some sense of the fact that you will give an account to him. So what do you do? This was the pursuit. I alluded or I talked about it earlier, the the book of Christianity and liberalism. He was this theologian was saying all of these people are pursuing an escape from their sin or uh, seeking the shelter from God and all these things that are not Christianity. And what he's saying is the Bible actually tells us what God really wants, how man is to be saved. I was recently speaking with one of my Hindu friends. Um, I met him during high school. His name is Vivek, so much like the presidential candidate. It's not not my friend. I'm not that cool. Uh, But the presidential candidate, Vivek, and that caught my attention. Man, I haven't talked to my friend Vivek in like 10 years. So called him up. He answered. It was amazing. Uh, And he and I all agree that people sin as our conversation goes on. But he thought that if he lives a life that was good enough, then God would forgive him. He had the idea that if his sins were not as bad, or so many, or even so bad, then he would act virtuously enough that his own sins would be outweighed or even erased. Friends, if you're not a Christian, I wonder if that's exactly how you see your sin. You you just need to have a little bit more of righteousness than sin. But that is not the picture presented in our Scripture and Scripture as a whole. You cannot simply erase past sins or outdo them with righteousness. In fact, you can't do any righteousness outside of your own. The damage has already been done. If you you could erase them, there would be no justice in the universe. But So God wants His people to be restored. And He says that they can do this through His work, through God's work. And what a pleasure it is to see this happen. What a pleasure it is to see God's work in His people's lives where His people are being restored. You see this all over the place in the book of Micah. But lastly, God wants his own glory to be known. God wants his own glory to be known. 
God wants his own glory to be known. He wants his own people to be restored. He wants their sin to be rebuked. And we might even say with Romans in our back, for the praise and glory of God. God wants his character to be known, but how? Well, let me just give you a little bit of instruction I think we see from the text. God wants his glory to be known, so friend, know and acknowledge God's own supremacy. Think of the prophetic words, what what he'll do against sin and sinners and how he'll restore his beloved. These words of Micah also show God's sovereign rule to be understood. Think of Exodus. God delivered his people from Egypt, and in part, he did it by mocking Egypt's false gods. Think of Egypt again. God delivered his people from the rule of Egypt and then gave them what? A law that would allow them to see his own glory. Here it says that he'll deliver his people from Babylon, mockingly crushing these Babylonian gods. In the famous picture of peace in these verses, nations beating their swords into plowshares, it's in chapter 4, verse 3, will actually not come through anything other than God's own reign. He'll promise for a day to come when there will be no more greed, a day where there will be no more robbery, no more war, no more injustice. There will be no more fear. Justice and peace, which once were separated in the garden, now here are exemplified in the sin of man will one day reign together again under his good reign. God exalts his people as a means of exalting himself. You think of, you think of what it looks like, the picture in the book of Revelation where a bride and a bridegroom are meeting. It's often for us to think how glorious and beautiful a bride is. But really, the, the tone and the posture, and the emphasis on that text is all about the bridegroom. There's an old hymn called The Sands of Time Are Sinking, uh, written hundreds of years ago and been redone and remastered today. It's one of my, one of my favorite hymns. It's kind of hard to sing. It's really long, so no one wants to do it. But there's a phrase in there where it says, The bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my, kings of, on my king of grace. Friend, know and acknowledge his supremacy. These people were doing the exact opposite. They thought they were strong and mighty. They thought they were the ones that were really in charge to the point where their hearts and almost a Romans one way gave over completely to their flesh. And in grace, he rebuked them. In love, he promises to rescue them. And through them being exalted, he will be glorified. The second thing here, then the third thing, friend, remember God's righteousness. Remember God's righteousness. Listen to what Micah says in Micah chapter 6, verse 1. Hear what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. There God reminds them of his miraculous delivery from Pharaoh's power, his preservation of them through the wilderness, and his giving of the promised land. God was righteous toward them in all of this. He wanted them to remember this. By chastening and delivering his people, God demonstrated his utter and complete righteousness in his dealings with them. In fact, their own wickedness made God's own rightness stand out all the more. And in case they're ever tempted to charge God with unrighteousness, at any point he would say, remember what I have done for you. Friends, I wonder if your own pursuit, how hard it is for you to remember the gracious things of the Lord how hard it is for you to rehearse all that God 
has done for you. I talked, I think, last week about the joy that our elders have in hearing the testimony of those who will come into membership. I think that it's not an obligation, but certainly a joy for you would be to meet someone, and you kind of have the excuse because they're in church, to where you go, oh, you know, how, how has God worked in your life? Maybe, maybe in the last week. Or how has God brought you to himself in a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? There's a lot of things in there, but can't you wait to hear the story of, man, I was eight and went to Good News Club, and God saved me. Or I went through the most horrific set of events in the world, but by the grace of God, he saved me. You're being reminded of what God has done in those people's lives because you're being reminded of what God has done for his people in redemptive history. He brought us, those who are enemies, those who are far away, into a saving understanding of what his son did finally on the cross, paying a substitute for the remnant. And he says, remember this, of all that you have done, because when you remember what God has done, you will remember and be reminded of his absolute glory. None of us could ever piece together the glorious things that God has done in his life. So he calls us to remember these things. God is supreme, and he wanted to be known. And God is righteous, and he wanted that to be known as well. The last thing here, three of three. Friends, know God's mercy. Know God's mercy. He wants his glory to be known, and you will do that by knowing his mercy. Look at chapter 8. Verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? for the remnant of his inheritance. He doesn't retain his anger forever, but he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He'll tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. He will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. You look at those words and how in many ways they're a they're a reversal of what was said in chapter 1. A pardon, compassion, liberation. To the point where Micah almost sings, who is a God like you? That's the Lord's final word through Micah to his people. Who is a God like you? But notice also that transgressions are forgiven. There's no one like him, and he forgives. He God forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance. The remnant consists of those who truly fear the Lord, who humble themselves before God alone, who repent of their sins, and who put their hope in God. I wonder if you've ever considered the question of why God would forgive at all. And this text answers. Why would God forgive you? Why we pray he would forgive others? Why he's only shown himself to be a God who forgives his people? Why does he do that? The question is answered with a question. Who is a God like you? Meaning God ultimately forgives because of who God is. It's only because of his character. What he really is like. That we have any hope at all. And the sweetness of verse 18 continues, this refrain. You do not stay angry forever. What a wonderful thing to know about God. And what a... What a dismantling of what we 
falsely or regularly see about God, that he's eternally mad at us, that he won't forgive you, that he won't ever come to you and rebuke you. Yet, yet friend, put the false understanding of what Christianity is away and put on what God says about himself, his own character. He's a God who is forgiving, who won't stay angry forever. What a merciful thing to know about God. He delights to show mercy. He desires it. God wants his character to be known here. I wonder if you've ever been on a a medical mission trip. Um, I would imagine several of us have. You go to a a faraway place. It doesn't even have to be far away. It could be here in Enid. But you go to a place and you have these doctors and these physicians and nurses and and people like me who just show up. I I can't help anyone. I can take your temperature. You show up and, and... Sometimes, if you're new to that area, you're, you're met with a sense of resistance. You're met with a sense of skepticism. You're met with a sense of, oh, people have been here before, and I didn't like what's happening. I'm not going to trust you at all. And so maybe hours and days go by where these doctors are literally just trying to do what they do. And imagine someone from the fold finally coming to a doctor and allowing him to help or perform something on that person. What do you think that that causes that doctor to then feel like? Joy. That he is who he is now for you. Friend, the, the great, the true and better doctor of our lives is one who is said to be forgiving. Through that rebuke, loving, through that pronouncement. And friend, if you are not what the Bible says in Christ, you need to know that this is offered to you. The same rebuke, this, this same opportunity for you to come and taste the sweet water and the, the fields that will feed you forever. It's because he desires it. So God wants his character to be known here. He wants his, his sovereign to be understood, his mercy to be seen. He wants his supreme, righteous, and merciful person to be recognized and adored. So that's what God wants. God wants wrong to be rebuked. And so the question would be, do you? God wants his people to be restored. And I'd imagine if I asked the question to you, you would say, well, absolutely. And God also wants his character to be known. And friend to you, here we see the, the turn of what Michael was doing and what they should have done. You can imagine all the thousands of people in this midst who were living a life for themselves, not for God's glory, who were living a life as if they were the answer to their own problem rather than for his restitution They were living a life in hiding and even enjoying what they know is wrong, and so he needed to be rebuked. And here's the real bullseye of this book. God acts so that his supremacy, his righteousness, and his mercy will be known, and he acts to reveal himself through all these things. And so the question remains, do you even care that much about this God? And would your life reflect it? With the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the moment by moment, the reflections of the past, does it reflect that this life is not about me, but all about the glory of God? Or this life is actually not about the glory of God, but really it's, I've made it all about myself. And so if you fail to do this, then what this text would say is that you need to be forgiven by God. And you can, later on, more amplified by trusting in the Messiah who would come to openly and violently absorb God's wrath in your place. According to Micah's prophecy, Jesus would come from a place of insignificance, a town not mighty, but he would be glorious. We see this play out 
in the Gospels. This coming ruler would have a glorious ministry. Maybe not to common man, but to those who are in Christ would recognize the ministry that this man is doing is glorious. It says, or it predicts in chapter 5, verse 4, you don't have to go there, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. God intends for justice to be done in this world, and it will be Christ Jesus alone who will judge the world perfectly, whereas greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He embodies both sovereignty and the righteousness of God. Now, uh, chapter 5, verse 5 says that he, the, the coming Messiah, will be their peace. It says that he will be their portion, or he will be the embodiment of peace altogether. In him, the people's peace will be accomplished. In him, the people's peace will be secured. Christ Jesus is the embodiment of what this text is longing for. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of what this text is pronouncing on us. So I don't care how many times you've heard about Jesus' death on the cross and growing up, there is nothing here to take for granted in what his death accomplished and what it means. If you're aware of your sin and what you deserve because of it, then you will be astounded by the love God has shown us by Christ's death on the cross. His death was a stunning display of the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of God's love for those who have rejected him, the remnant. How much love was given over to make the freeness of all of us be provided to come to himself. All of God's love was poured out for us. So friend, walk away from Micah recognizing that God will have sin rebuked. He will have his people restored and his sovereign, righteous, merciful character be displayed more broadly and deeply than ever before. The question for you, though, is do you love this God? Not the one you may have in your head, not the one you may have told by other people. Do you have this view of God from this very text of Scripture? Has this God captured your heart to the point where you surrender and call out to him for salvation? Friend, that's what God wants. Let's pray.